Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is editorial director for Sweetwater, Mitch Gallagher. But first of all, I bet you didn't know, but Spotify actually does play music videos. And that's the source of some sort of tension between the publishers, record labels, and Spotify. There's actually a lot of tension these days between Spotify and the record labels. And a lot of that comes from the fact that Spotify has tried to do direct deals with both artists and indie labels. That would mean that the major labels are being cut out, so they're not too happy about that. Of course, what's going to happen relatively soon is the fact that what we're going to see is a renegotiation of the terms of the licensing agreements that they have. So that means that up until then, there's a lot of tension until they actually get that out of the way. But when it comes to music videos... One of the big problems is the fact that Spotify is not actually paying the music publishers. One of the reasons why is Spotify has a tendency to experiment with features. And they roll them out before they tell anybody. And then they go back later and they try to get permission to do so and work out a licensing scheme. And they haven't really done it in the case of music videos. So everybody's a little testy because of this. Because, let's face it, that means that publishers and songwriters are not getting paid from Spotify music videos. Now, even though they don't make up a great number of the activity on Spotify, music videos are important, and they're especially important to some playlists, especially the big ones. Rap Caviar is a big one where music videos really do make a big impact on it. So, in fact, this is something that everybody is worried about, wondering about, and wondering how it's going to make an impact on the next round of contract talks that should be happening relatively soon. So if you haven't watched any videos on Spotify, go check them out. Just like watching them anywhere else, but it's a little bit more convenient, I think, than it is on YouTube, especially when you're trying to find something new. So anyway, Spotify videos and the war around them. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Just a heads up that my new book, The Music Business Advice Book, is now available and was the number one seller on the Amazon Music Business Books chart. It's comprised of 150 immediately useful tips compiled from the interviews from this podcast. You'll find it on Amazon and most other online book retailers, as well as a bookstore near you. And again, thank you all for your support. Now, I bet you didn't know, but Neumann microphones actually carry a number of different colored logo badges. In other words, right on the front, you'll find a logo. But guess what? There are actually five different colors, and they all mean something. So I'm going to pull back the curtain on this Neumann mystery. So first of all, we have red, black, purple, blue, and green. Those are the five colors. All this information comes from Pro Tools Expert, by the way. Thank you very much. It's a great online resource. And they have a version for just about every different digital audio workstation out there, not just Pro Tools. So, first of all, red. A red Neumann logo means it's a transformerless transistor microphone. 
Red means transformerless transistor mic. A black badge, however, indicates that it's a tube microphone. A purple badge means it's a transistor mic, only it has a transformer. So red and purple are different, one with the transformer, one without. A blue logo badge means it's a digital microphone. I think they only have one or two in the line. And a green badge means it's a dynamic microphone. Of course, Neumann isn't known for those so much, but nonetheless, if it's a Neumann product, you know it's made well. So there we have it. Green, red, black, purple, and blue, the color of the Neumann badges. My guest this week is Sweetwater's editorial director, Mitch Gallagher, who started his career as a guitarist, vocalist for various rock and country bands while earning a degree in music from Moorhead State University and studying with various classical guitar masters. After making his living as a touring musician, he made a left turn into the music magazine business, first as a technical editor for Keyboard Magazine, and then as the editor-in-chief for EQ Magazine. Along the way, Mitch has published thousands of articles for a wide variety of industry magazines, as well as eight books. But you may know him today for his excellent work on the Sweetwater's three weekly video shows, Sweetwater Minute, Guitars and Gear, and the iOS Update. During this interview, we spoke about what it's like to have access to the latest and greatest music and audio products, the latest trends in gear, and the secret advice that he received that enabled him to finally release his latest EP called Foundation. We spoke via Skype from his home studio in Fort Wayne, Indiana. How did you get into the business, and then how did you transition into writing and being an editor? Very good questions. Um, I um, come from a small town in North Dakota, and I was one of very few guitar players there, so uh, I, I moved to Fargo, North Dakota, and went to college. And I uh, met some musicians and went on the road and did the the, the uh rock cover band thing for about a year. And then I did the, uh, the hotel lounge cover band thing for about a year, year and a half country, you know, the country circuit, uh, all over the Midwest, uh, up into Canada, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, uh, Nebraska, you know, uh, Iowa, all over, all over that area we played and, uh, decided to go back to school. And while I was in school, I started working at a music store teaching guitar lessons. And so I did that for, uh, the duration of my, my, the rest of my college career, moved to Kansas City to attend the University of Missouri, Kansas City, um, studying music composition and electronic music. I'm, I'm sorry, music composition and classical guitar is what I was studying there, focusing mainly on electronic music, and started working at a music store there called Big Dudes Music City. And uh, while I was there, I started to write a few articles for little guitar newsletters, uh, taught some classes for the other uh, – for uh, for some of the other salespeople, but also for the public uh, on weekends, I'd go in and teach classes. And so I kind of got into that whole educational side of it and started writing up some materials for all those things. And that was kind of the start of me getting into uh, to really doing any writing at all. I'd never done any writing before that, uh, but I was always kind of the, the gear guy in the band, you know, the guy who could get the mixer working, get the PA set up. You know? Me too, yeah. Uh, I had the I was the first guy that did that uh, you know kind of figured out the four track cassette so he could make a demo and you know the, the usual story right yeah. four track cassette boy I'm dating myself there but while I was at in Kansas City uh, I was also playing in bands and I had uh, built a studio in my house and was doing uh, some albums for people I did a lot of uh, parody recordings for local radio stations where they'd say hey we need this Duke Ellington song so we can put different lyrics on it. And so I'd do all the backing tracks for that. Oh. And uh, so I did that and did, uh, you know, man, I did 
Duke Ellington. I did Hart. I did. I mean, everybody who was big in the in the eighties. I was doing parody uh, tracks for them for the for these radio stations, which was a, an amazing education. Just tuned your ear like you, like you wouldn't believe, both musically and also as an engineer, because you're trying to duplicate the sounds and get the you know the exact same thing going. And uh, and so I, I was going to grad school. I was working at the music store. I was playing in bands. Had the studio at home. Was doing the whole thing and and. Quite honestly, I was, I was, you know, out of hours in the day that were, and uh, so I needed a break. I was just ready for a for a break, and I saw this ad in the back of Mix Magazine for uh, this store I had never heard of called Sweetwater, and uh, so I applied. And that was in 1992, and I was hired as the fifth sales engineer, and uh, my employee number is number 30, and uh, you know they're probably at like 5,000 now or something. So I was I was one of the I wasn't in the very earliest. Uh, building, which was basically in Chuck's house, but I was in the first dedicated building they had for Sweetwater, which was just a little metal building and a gravel parking lot in the middle of a cornfield was literally what it was. And uh, so they brought me out and I did the interview. And and even then it was very clear that Chuck just had a different idea, a different approach to doing things. And and the rest of the guys were all just, they were so expert. And so, uh, you know, the, the whole approach to customer service was already in place. The whole approach of, of, uh, tech support and expertise on the phones and all that stuff was already there. So I, I came out here. I, I moved to Fort Wayne uh, in, uh, it was actually October 30th of 1992 is when I started here. And I was here for about five and a half years. Now, after a couple of years, I actually transitioned out of sales and into the marketing department. And I wrote the first catalogs and started the blog, uh, the InSync Daily blog, which is still going today. I started the word for the day. I started the tech tip for the day. I did thousands of those things, literally. And uh, so I was doing a ton of writing and writing articles for Sweet Notes and the different publications that they had at that time. It was before the you know video or any of those kind of things. And, uh, you know, after five and a half years or whatever, it was it was uh, 1998, I, I saw, again, I just saw a little ad in the back of Keyboard Magazine. You know, we're looking for editorial, I think, I think they were looking for an editorial assistant is what they were looking for. And so, so I applied, um, not even really knowing what an editorial assistant was. And they said, well, you're way overqualified to be editorial assistant, but what we really need is a technical editor. And so I ended up becoming the technical editor at Keyboard Magazine and later became the senior technical editor there. So I moved out to San Francisco and was the, uh, the technical editor at Keyboard Magazine, which was really interesting for a guitar player to be the technical editor at keyboard, but, but I was always the MIDI guy, you know, I was always the technology guy. And so I understood all the samplers and all the keyboards of the day. And I was really big on software and things. And, uh, and, uh, and so it, it was a perfect fit for me. I just, I just loved doing that, that gig. And the crew was, was just amazing. The staff they had at that time was, you know, it was, it was still the golden age of, of those magazines. And it was, it was really, really cool. It was for me, that was a dream come true because I remember reading keyboard magazine, Back before I even played instruments, I, I was buying keyboard and I was buying guitar player. And those two magazines were like my Bible, right? Yeah. And so to get to go there and work with those guys and the guitar player guys were in the same building just down the hall and bass player was there and, uh, you know, and a couple other magazines. And so to, to I, that was just like a dream come true. And I remember going to my first NAM show on the, edit, on the editorial journalist side and I sat down in my very first meeting and Craig Anderton sat down next to me and Craig was like my hero, right? I wanted to be Craig Anderton, yeah, yeah. you know? 
And he sat down and I introduced myself, you know, all nervous. And he's like, oh, you're the guy that's going to be editing my articles. Uh, like, oh, crap. <laughs> 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 and of course, we've become best friends and we still work together to this day. And Craig is incredible. He's, he's just an amazing guy. But scared the scared the crap out of me, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could I could just imagine him doing that, too. I would I, I just imagine how he would say it, that, that it would come yeah. across like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so that was my introduction to the, the whole thing. I'd literally been at Keyboard Magazine like a week uh, at that point. But So fast forward two years. I'm senior technical editor at Keyboard, and I get a phone call from the New York office of the company that, that owns uh, Keyboard. And they say, we are looking for an editor for EQ Magazine. And EQ Magazine kind of had a virtual staff up to that point. There were people who worked on it, but there really wasn't a dedicated editor. For the magazine, they were kind of doing a group was kind of doing all that stuff, which worked great. And there were great magazines. I had subscribed to it from day one. I loved it. Yeah. And so I jumped at the chance and went out there and interviewed and ended up getting getting the gig in uh, 2000 as editor of, of EQ, which I think is about when we met probably the first trade show after that. And then you wrote however many probably hundreds of articles for lots, me through the lots, years. Yeah. There. yeah, I was there for five and a half years until mid 2005. And, and as you know, at that point. A lot of the magazines, I mean, the, the landscape changed pretty dramatically, you know, and, and as the editor, I was having to deal with a lot of that kind of, uh, let's just say the corporate aspects of, uh, of the, the music, of the, the magazine industry. And, and to be honest with you, it just wasn't as much fun anymore. Sure. And uh, so I had stayed on really good terms with Chuck, the owner of Sweetwater, and I always saw him at trade shows and I, I'd left on very good terms. And uh, so I called him up and he's like, well, come and do what you're doing for the magazines, but do it for me because I need somebody to do all these publications and uh, kind of oversee everything. And so I came back here middle of 2005, March, 2005, actually is what it was. And, uh, at that time I was overseeing the pro gear catalog, the sweet notes publication, which is our, our uh, newsletter. It goes out at that time. It went out every other month, the, the web, all the web text and everything. So I was busy just doing tons and tons of stuff. Um, and then, um, which I loved. I, I just absolutely loved it. It's, it's just I mean, totally in my wheelhouse to to work on articles and to play with new gear and to to try things out and be involved in that, all those aspects of it is so cool. Uh, but but what has really been fun is in 2009, we decided we should try doing some videos. And uh, so we literally were in my office with a handheld, you know, just a handheld camera. And uh, we're like, okay, Mitch, show us what new gear has showed up on your desk. And I, you know, they're terrible. I look at them now and I just cringe. I can hardly watch them, you know. Um, but uh, but it, it worked. And it was, it was, we got a lot of, uh, a lot of great hits and a lot of great attention and uh, a lot of uh, positive comments. And so we started building the video department. And uh, since then, I've done probably, I haven't added them up, but if I just look at averages for a year, somewhere around probably 1,600 videos for, for Sweetwater. Wow. Uh, I mean, those are everything from product demos to how-to videos, to lots and lots of artist interviews, engineer-producer interviews, uh, tons of trade show coverage. Uh, I have three shows a week that I do that are kind of scheduled, and then lots of other uh, things that show up. But there are now um, six of us who do videos here at Sweetwater, counting myself, and then there's a, a staff of one, two, three, four, five, uh, six or seven production people who are shooting the videos and editing them. And, and so... Uh, you know, we have two studios that we shoot out of here. We have a big studio uh, where we can do larger shoots and drum kits and bigger artist interviews and things. And then I have what I call my insert studio, which is basically set up like a pro audio recording studio. And that's where I do a lot of the microphone demos and software demos and, and those kind of things. And so we have those two spaces that we can work uh, work between with all the different people shooting here. So 
I mean, I've, I've just landed in my, my dream gig. I mean, it's, it's so fun. You know, I, I get to meet all these incredible people. I get to see all this incredible gear, usually well ahead of everybody else. And, uh, and I get to talk about it and play with it and show it and demonstrate it. And I, I just have a blast. Well, I want to talk to you more about that. But first, I didn't realize that you were such an early employee yeah. at Sweetwater. I thought the Sweetwater came after your magazine stint, but it's in the middle, basically. I'm a boomerang. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you my Chuck story. Yeah. Because I have an early Chuck story, too. I was the sales manager for Amic consoles way back yeah. when, the U.S. sales manager. And you had one in the, when I first came here. And I had a, a rep that said, you just have to come meet this guy. You have to meet Chuck. And he wants to be a dealer. And I'm thinking... A dealer for our consoles, a pretty high end. He's in Fort Wayne. How's that going to work? So I come out and I meet Chuck, and all Chuck had was a small music store. Sweetwater was was in that that strip mall originally. It might yeah, be before I, your time, but but he, was, yeah, if it was, in, I, I don't remember it ever being in a strip mall. So that was uh, yeah, yeah, well before my time. Yeah, he so it was in a strip mall, and it's a small store too. It wasn't even large. And we get to talking and he starts to lay out his grand vision and the grand vision was mail order and everything. And I'm thinking to myself, the politics of this is going to be incredible because at the time there's so many dealers out there and they'd all go crazy when there'd be somebody doing any kind of mail order. I said, Chuck, I just don't see how you're going to do that. And here we are with 30 years later and not only did he pull it off, but he pulled it off really well. Granted, Guitar Center helped him out when he came in and they killed all the local dealers off. That helped. And then the internet, of course. And, and then people like you that are taking it to another level. Because when I look at what you do, I look at it and I think, and this happens, Mitch, so often. I look and I think, this is the modern magazine. This is what magazines should be doing. Because that's what you're doing. You're putting together a magazine, only it's, it's virtual. Right. You do it so well. It's, it's great. I, I must admit, every time you put something out, I look at it and I think, wow, th this is just awesome. This is the way it ought to be. Oh, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that very much. Yeah. He, uh, he, uh, the story goes that, um, Chuck had a K250, which was the early Kurzweil, you know, the, the first, one of the first sampling keyboards. Yeah. And at the time it was kind of a, a closed system. It was very expensive. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know how much money it was, 20 grand or 30 grand or something for, in, you know, in those days. Um, and he reverse engineered it and, and made a sound block for it. And so he started getting calls from people like, uh, Stevie wonder and Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton and their touring managers and their music directors saying, Hey, help, <laughs> you know, can we buy your sounds? And so he started this, this network to trade sounds and to, to do all this thing and that, to, you know, to, to trade all that stuff that he was creating. And, um, they started calling and saying, you know, we love the service you give us on this Kurzweil. Why can't we buy? our Kurzweil gear from you. And so he became a Kurzweil dealer. And then they said, well, we buy that. Why can't we buy our, this from you? Why can't we? So he became a dealer for that. And so it, it was a very organic kind of way that he got into the business all based on it, which still continues today is, is really the common thread for the company is based on that expertise and delivering something that nobody else could deliver. And so it really goes back to those early days of Chuck literally reverse engineering the Kurzweil K250 and these big stars, and then they told their friends, and so on, and so on, and so on, and just grew by word of mouth into this whole, into this whole kind of thing. And then you know it's, it's just exploded from there. But it still basically works exactly the same kind of way. 
you know, people are looking for a solution and we have the expertise, the idea is that we have the expertise to deliver that solution for them, whatever it might be. I had no idea that he started like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's because he was a musician. He plays saxophone. He still plays yeah. hundred gigs a year, you know, hundred nights a year, whatever. He's got two bands that he's with. That he's very busy. And, uh, and so he's a musician doing that and had a studio in his house and, uh, and got into the whole Kurzweil thing kind of around the, the back door kind of approach to it was, which is really a cool, cool, great American success story, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about your gig there. What I find interesting is you must be inundated with gear. I mean, everybody and their brother wants their gear in Sweetwater. And of course, everybody wants your, your kind of, I'm not going to say it's a seal of approval, but they, they want your, your presentation of it. So that being said, how do you decide what you're going to showcase? It's, that's a great question. Um, there is, uh, I, I forget because I'm not directly involved kind of in that side of it, but there, we have something like 30,000 items in our, 30,000 SKUs, you know, and obviously multiples of those. So all of those products want coverage. They all want to be presented and, and be, uh, be, you know, put out there. And clearly we can't. Uh, and so there actually is, uh, back in the day, it was a little bit more whoever came to me, <laughs> you know, yeah. but it, it's got where well, we can't do that anymore. You know, with six of us and with so much going on and so many uh, lines and so many uh, products and things. So it really is, uh, it, it is a uh, much more of a, a group kind of a consensus on it at this point. Um, I certainly weigh in with my opinion, but we have an incredible merchandising department. Those are the people who actually order the equipment and keep it in our warehouse and, and manage all that, which is an astounding job. And they do it just, I, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they, they have the foresight to know how many to order and what to order and what's, you know, what's going to be uh, popular, what's going to sell, what they do. And so all of us kind of get together and, and we'll say, you know, we think this product is going to need a push or this product deserves a push or we want to really, we have this, this product coming in. We think it's really cool. A lot of times for me personally, it's just, I just think it's cool. Hmm. Why, why would I not, you know, that, that's kind of the, why, why would I spend my time on something? I don't think it's cool. And so, so generally it's, it's, that's, that's a big part of it for all us content producers is we just, it's cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's on, on our side of it. And then there's the, the side of it that comes from merchandising where they're, they're looking at some of the more, you know, the more, um, data-driven sides of things, but they also, they, they, a lot of it is just by gut. A lot of it is just, what are we interested in? What, what looks like it's really going to be cool? Now, what's interesting is coming from the magazine side of the business where obviously you hear about what's new all the time. You hear about what's going on and, and a few pieces come through for review and everything, but you get your hands on everything. There's all sorts of gear that's coming through there. And I would have to think that no, there comes a point where you go, I, I don't know if I can keep up with all this. It, that is, a, well, that's, you know, that was a problem. If you want to call it a problem, I, you know, it's actually kind of cool if you think about it, but it's, uh, it's, uh, been a, even, even in the magazine industry, how do you keep ahead of all of the, not just products, but all the knowledge you need to have? Mm. I mean, it, it, it is a huge part of my job just staying current, whether that's with just the new technologies or the new approaches or, or what's happening with uh, not just the technology, but also with music. So you're, you're on top of the trends and how people are using things and what they're using and where they're using it and how they're using it. In, in the old days, Sweetwater was very much just recording in keyboards. By the time I left in 98, we were just barely getting into guitars. I think we had Paul Reed Smith guitars was the first brand we brought in. And so we had just gotten guitars. I don't think we had an amplifier line yet at that, at that point. And there were no drums. There was no, you know, 
there was no EDM, there was no lighting, there was no, there was some live sound, but it was, it was more focused and a little easier, but still a tremendous challenge to stay ahead of that. Now we do everything, uh, you know, whether it's drums and guitars and basses and keyboards and computers and software and live sound and recording equipment and lighting and, you know, I mean, on and on and on, it, it's incredible. So part of what has made it possible is really my focus now is pro audio and higher tech guitar, as well as, um, you know, some of the, 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 uh, you know, the modeling stuff, the digital guitar stuff, some of the pedals, some of the amps and some of the guitars as well. Uh, but we now have someone on staff, Nick DiRigilio, amazing drummer. Oh, I know Nick. Yep. Drum. Sure. Yeah, uh, Nick Bocott is now here doing more of the metal guitar stuff. You know, Don Carr does a lot of the pedals and, and some of the amplifiers. He and I kind of split the guitar stuff. Uh, we have uh, Daniel Fisher, who's sort of the ultimate mad scientist synthesizer expert guy. And we have uh, Jacob Dupre is our newest guy. Uh, is a tremendous keyboard player. And so he's been doing digital pianos and keyboards and, and some of the uh, software kind of things. And, and so we've been able to split it a little bit. And, but I still try to, uh, I still try to keep my fingers in all of it. So I know a little more, I, I like to just have an understanding of what everything is doing because you, you just can't stay in a vacuum, right? If, if all I did was recording stuff, you'd miss out on how that's impacting and interacting with all the other aspects of it. So that's a super long-winded way of saying it's a tremendous challenge. It, it really is. Okay. You're the perfect guy to ask then. What do you consider like the biggest trend in musical instruments or pro audio for that matter? Is there something new that's coming up that maybe a lot of people don't know about? Oh, man, that's a great question. And believe me, I get asked that question all the time. You know, I think it, it would be interesting to compare what I think to uh, to what our sales trends show and, you know, what's popular on the website and all of, all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, it, it's, uh, there are the staples. There are those things that are just, everybody wants them as the basis for what they're doing. Like in a recording studio, we have certain preamps, we have certain, you know, all those kind of things that are just the go-to items, right? Um, the digital stuff has just made a tremendous inroad. And I, I see that continuing. I see the desktop production thing really getting even just getting better and better and better. I mean, it really is is astounding what you can do with a little desktop desktop studio. Having said that, I think there's a lot of interest. There's a surprising amount of interest in acoustical treatment mm. and that kind of thing because people realize the room is a big part of what what makes a great recording. Good, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a, that's a big deal. But you know, the new digital stuff. I, th I think the uh, the digital modeling microphones are pretty intriguing. You know, they're they're doing some amazing stuff. There's three of them out there now, and I think they're uh, they're they're pretty astounding. And uh, plugins continue to get better. You know, we see uh, DSP improving. We see new approaches to stuff. You, you'd think after all these years, you, you know, it, it would you'd get a little jaded, or you know, you'd think you'd seen it all before, and then something shows up. Yeah. It just is like, wow, how the heck does that do that? I, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, the latest one that just came across my desk was, and I just did a video on it, was a plugin from Synaptic, and I want to say Intensity was is the name of it, but it's uh, it's it's kind of a mastering plug-in it's kind of an eq it's kind of a compressor it uses like facial recognition technology to to do all this predictive and adaptive kind of process and i have you know i have no clue what's going on under the hood but it, it just sounds great it works great it's it's amazing it's like where where did this come from you know who thought of this using facial recognition stuff so yeah. you know even though we, we always it, it's easy to 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 say oh it's all been done or whatever but it hasn't there's you know there's just still wide open for new stuff to come out one of the things I find interesting is the seeming takeover of amplifier modeling. 
where all of a sudden it's acceptable to go out almost anywhere and gig with a, a, a modeler. And now wow. we're seeing large acts doing it. You see Metallica going out without amplifiers. You go, wow, okay, I guess this is really caught on then. I think there are, there are several reasons for that. Number one, they've gotten to where the tones are now acceptable for, for what guitar players are looking for. And above that, the feel has gotten acceptable. Because that, that was always kind of the... They're, they're, those were the two aspects, right? Because it's one thing to sound like it if it doesn't feel right. Yep. So you got to have both of those. But maybe even more than that, especially for the bigger touring acts like you're talking about, I mean, we have a lot of artists come through here. It's a logistical thing. It's a heck of a lot easier to pick up your lunchbox size Kemper than it is to have stacks and stacks of Marshalls. And, and uh, you know, maybe you'd prefer the Marshalls just for a variety of reasons. But from a stick it in the overhead on the airplane kind of standpoint, it makes a lot of sense, Right. And the other thing I think we're seeing is a real move toward, if not silent stages, really, really volume-controlled stages. And that has so many benefits, both from a monitoring standpoint, whether you're using in-ears or you're using live monitors on stage, but it has just tremendous benefits for front of house in that you're not fighting that stage volume yeah. that uh, for so many years you kind of had to have because the PAs couldn't keep up. Now we've got PA systems that are you know, awesome and, and incredible, and you don't need to have that stage volume the only reason for the stage volume is for if you, for some reason, from a performance standpoint, need or want want to have it. And so I think that has driven that, especially in the house of worship market. You know, very rarely do you go into church anymore where there's live amplifiers on stage. It's, it's a silent stage. You know, the electronic drums and the whole thing is is silent. Once you play that way and you don't go home with your ears ringing and, you know, you're, you're, even if you wore your plugs, and, uh, you know, and your, your body beat up just from the sheer decibel level. You know, it, it can be kind of freeing, but, you, you know, once you get into that kind of a, an approach to performing and again, just to, to go beyond that, the sound is the same absolutely every night. You know, it doesn't change because you're you're going direct with a digital product, whether it's into your ears and into the front of the front of house or whatever. There's so many variables that are removed. So I think those are all the reasons why why we're seeing a, an increase in interest in that. Having said that, you know, I, I don't think there's any danger or any even trend at all for real amplifiers, for lack of a better way to say it, going away hmm. because real amplifiers are still, you know, just as popular as they've always been and just used just as much. It's just another tool is the way that, the way that I see it, uh, whether in the studio or on the stage. Yeah. 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 Have you seen a trend in pro audio? I, I have. It's interesting in the last couple of months, I've, I've interviewed several artists and talked to a number of artists that are really getting back to wanting to record live in the studio. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the last artists I just interviewed, Corey Wong, uh, plays with a band called Wolfpack. They don't need more headphones. You know, so they're, these are younger musicians going into the studio and recording the way it was done, you know, back in the day. And uh, I, I don't think they're doing that for technical reasons. They're doing it for musical reasons. And that's driving, uh, you know, some of the things that are happening in pro audio, because obviously you have to have a setup that will allow you to track in that kind of a situation. And above all that, you got to have a room to, to do it in to, uh, if you're really going to capture it well. Uh, but, uh, that, that's an interesting trend to me is that it, yeah, I see bands getting back to live recording as opposed to overdubbing, you know, and doing everything part by part by part. Interesting trend. I love that. And you can always predict that it was going to happen because everything goes in cycles and we'd gone so far the other way that you'd think, well, sooner or later it has to pull back to recording the way we, we were used to doing it once upon a time and, and we found to be very effective. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, um, and I, 
I should have asked this question, and I, I kind of wish I, I had asked the question, I'm, because I'm curious what is driving these artists to do that. And my suspicion is that, you know, when I talk to my younger nephews and, and uh, nieces, and they're, they're listening to classic rock, and they're listening to, you know, have you heard this amazing band Aerosmith from the 70s, you know, or Boston or Van Halen or, or whomever, you know, and I, I suspect that bands are listening to that music and, and uh, hearing something that they're not hearing with the part by part by part approach. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that because obviously we get great music out of both approaches, but it's a little bit more organic approach that I think on the musician side of it, filtering over to the studio pro audio side of it is appealing. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. And one can only hope that that continues actually. Yeah, absolutely. It stays organic. Let's talk about your EP. Yeah. It took you a long time to get this out, right? You don't put one out every year. No, it's you're you're not the first person to uh, to recognize that fact. I had a friend of mine who I met uh, actually when I was in Kansas City, and he said, "You know, if I had saved a quarter a year, I could pay for your EP. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have saved just or a dime a year, so he had worked it out, whatever whatever it was, fifteen cents, you know, whatever it was. Uh, it kind of cracked me up, but yeah, it uh, it took a little while, but I know why that is, and. Uh, there are two reasons. Number one, I'm an incurable perfectionist, which I think goes along with being an editor. But also, yeah. uh, uh, I, I had this, uh, I won't say fixation, but I had this inclination that I had to do everything myself. And I just never got things finished when I was trying to be the composer and the musician and the recording engineer and the mastering engineer and the blah and the ranger and blah, 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 blah. It just never happened. So that was one aspect of why it never happened. The other aspect was I was always trying to do a full album. I wanted to have 12 songs or, or more songs or whatever. And I have a more than full-time gig and I do, uh, you know, writing on the side and I write books and, uh, you know, I do lots of other stuff and I have a family, you know, I have, I have a wife and, and, uh, I like to do things uh, with her now and then. And, you know, there's, there's lots of other things. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, it was just too big of a project to ever finished. So, so when I, talked to again a bunch of uh, artists they were all saying you know we're not doing albums anymore we're doing eps we're doing four or five songs at a time or we're, we're releasing a song a month and then releasing an ep and we're getting multiple touches per year with our with our fans and they love it because they get four songs and they get four songs and they get four songs and plus it's really easy we can just do four songs instead of having to have 12 or you know and so you know i'm not completely stupid i said huh you know maybe that'll work for me <laughs> and so that that was uh, that was the key was deciding that what I was going to do was five songs and, um, and, uh, I was not going to do it all myself. And part of what made that happen was, uh, we had, uh, a guitar player named Tom Hemby, who's a, an incredible, uh, session player from Nashville who also has a, has a, uh, does solo albums, uh, a fusion style guitars and jazz, jazz, uh, albums. And he was coming in to record and, and, uh, I had met some of the musicians in his band before interviewed uh some of them before and uh so i just reached reached out through the studio they didn't know it was me necessarily but just reached out to them and said hey will you guys come in early and play on some tracks so they said we have one day we'll come in one day so i had i had this was like three weeks in advance so i'm, I'm sitting there now i gotta come up with five songs and charts and you know the whole kind of thing so necessity is the deadline it's not the mother of invention. It's a deadline, you know? So, so it was like, if I didn't get that done, we weren't recording it, but I had paid for the musicians and I had paid for the session time. So, so, uh, I was able to get Keith Carlock, uh, who's the drummer for Steely Dan and, and total, like, you know, incredible, incredible drummer and Adam Nitty and, and, uh, Michael Whitaker, again, guys with just these incredible credentials who were playing in Tom's band. 
And uh, the four of us went in the day before their scheduled session and were able to do five songs, the basic tracks for five songs in one day out of it, which, again, it was recording live just in the uh, in the studio. And uh, I, I call this the opportunity EP because that was just an opportunity I couldn't pass up to, to have those guys. And I had a similar opportunity later, uh, Carl Verheyen, who's uh, you know just an absolutely astounding L.A. session guitar player. He's played with Supertramp for 30 or 40 years or something. Just an, and also a really good friend and a really great guy was going to be here for a couple of hours. And so I snagged two hours with him in the studio to lay down some parts on as a guest. And I had a chance to piggyback onto a horn section uh, session down in Nashville at Ocean Way. And uh, so, uh, you know, again, I, I just couldn't pass it up. I was like, okay, well, these guys are going in there. How about if I just you know, take a couple hours at the end. And so, you know, we did all the horn charts and like the guys played them down in like an hour and a half. And then the saxophone player stayed for an hour and played a couple solos and melodies and hey, we're done, you know? And then, so then the work was just mine to record my parts at home and to clean stuff up and mix it. But it's a very organic approach, even though we did do some separate sessions there and I did lay the guitars on later. Um, it was still, I wanted that organic band playing in a room kind of thing with the rhythm section. You know, there's no editing to a grid. There were, I think we punched in maybe two or three notes on it on the basic tracks and uh, everything is, there were, there was no more than two tra- two takes on eight per song. So it was either the first take or the second take and it was a complete take and that's, that's what we used. And I just loved that about it because it took me totally out of that perfectionist, you know, mindset of, of oh, I'm going to grid everything and I'm going to fix everything and I'm going to, but there was nothing to fix because with Keith Carlock drumming, what are you going to fix? The guy's yeah. perfect. Yeah. You know? <laughs> It's already perfect. You know, why would I mess with that? And, and why would I mess with Adam Nitty playing bass or Michael Whitaker's organ playing or, or you know, EP play, electric piano playing? So it was, uh, it was, that was the approach that worked. And uh, I, I now think I've got it figured out and I want to do more things. Now I'm very excited about the way the whole thing, whole thing came together because it was so much fun letting other people do what they do. So Mark Hornsby, who's the, the he runs the studios here, uh, did the engineering for the basic tracks and also for the horn section. I went out to uh, I went out to have it mastered in uh, New York. Scott Hall uh, mastered it for me out there. Who coincidentally also did some of the Steely Dan stuff that uh, Keith Carlock played on, and uh, John Hinchy did the horn charts for me. So I I was able to sit back and say, you know, let these people who do these things do them better than I can do them. Just because I can do them doesn't mean I should. And the product's going to be better. The end result is going to be better if I let them do it. And I just kind of produce and compose and, you know, play a few guitar licks here and there. And, uh, and, uh, so I'm very pleased with the way it came out. That's awesome, Mitch. And really that's the best way to do it when it's all said and done. If you get great players, you just let them do their thing and it usually comes out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I've had people ask me, uh, you know, can I, can, can I see the charts? What did you give the, they were curious, you know, what did I give the keyboard player? What did I give the drummer? What did I give the bass player? And they're just lead sheets, you know, it's just chord charts and they, their parts are what they put, you know, am I really going to tell Michael Whitaker what to play on keyboards? You know, I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, there's, there's no reason for me to do that when he's, he's so brilliant at just coming up with things. And as, as were all the musicians on there, uh, you know, if anything, like someone with Carl Verheyen, there's too many ideas. He's, he's such yeah. an idea engine that, that you have this, you know, this, this huge mass of things at the end where you go, well, okay, let's take this, let's take this, let's take this. But I really tried to keep it to, I'm taking complete takes, you know, so he would do three takes of a solo and just pick the best one. Yeah. That yeah. were the one you liked the best because they're all great. And any one of them would have been perfectly fine. And, uh, that, that translated to mixing it too. I tried to mix it like a band. I, I did mix it myself. I, I, um, I, 
toyed with the idea of sending it off and having someone mix it. I know so many engineers and producers in the uh, in the industry, and and I did even talk to a, a couple of people about mixing it just to again remove myself from that process. But I had a, such a specific idea of what I wanted it to sound like, and uh, you know, there's there's almost no processing on the record. There's very very little compression, very very little EQ. What you're hearing is eighty percent what we captured in the studio. And uh, even though, again, there were a couple different sessions and all I did was try to make them sound like they were all in the same room. Uh, when we mastered it, there was no concern with making it loud. Uh, I, I told Scott, what I want to hear are the dynamics that the musicians played. And, uh, and I don't want a really bright kind of sound, which I know a lot of people really like. I don't want a lot of bottom end. I want it to sound like musicians in a room playing. And it's been gratifying that that without me telling people that, that's what I've been hearing back, that it sounds like a band playing in a room. And, and uh, so that, that's very gratifying to me. Just out of curiosity, what kind of gear did you use and guitar gear? What was your setup? Uh, you know, it, it uh, may surprise people, but I actually recorded the guitars. 90% of the guitars are recorded direct. So Carl's guitars, it was a deluxe that uh, actually Mark Hornsby and I modded. Uh, I changed out some tubes and changed some things around and, and speakers and cabinets and things. Uh, his was mic'd, and I think one of my tracks that I took in and reamped uh, survived. But everything else I did at home with uh I, I recorded direct into an apollo uh apollo the second generation apollo 8p or, or apollo 8 uh with a, a rupert neve and rndi direct box so i recorded direct into pro tools monitoring through my amp at the same time and then everything was reamped back out uh through either a uh, fuchs overdrive supreme a friedman buxom betty or uh i have two fender deluxes that paul rivera modded for me uh, basically he did the same mod on those that the 70s studio players were using. So Paul Jackson Jr. and Lee Rittenauer and Larry Carlton, all those guys had these Revere modded amps. I've got the same thing. I've got a pair of those. So it was, it was, uh, reamped back out through one of those three amps and then recorded into a little box called a Revere mini rock wreck. And that is a, uh, a load box and also an analog speaker emulator. So it's got a switch on it and you can choose six different speaker cabinets and it's just a filter network in there works great for me. And that went straight into a Neve, a Shelford channel, um, which I did not use the EQ, didn't really use the compression, just used basically the uh, the preamp section of that into a, a Burl uh, A to D converter and then digitally into the Apollo. And I'm just so thrilled with the way that came out. And no one has been able to tell me which track was mic'd and which track was direct. So again, I'm gratified by, by that. To me, they sound totally natural and I've never had anybody say, oh, those guitars sound direct, but there was no speakers were harmed in the making of this record. That's <laughs> awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's a trend for you. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So I did it all by my little bedroom studio at home is where the guitars were all done. Very cool, Mitch. Well, congrats for getting it finished. That's, that's terrific and getting it out and doing such a great job. Thank you. Yeah. Last question for you, Mitch. You've been in the business for a long time, and when I say the business, I mean the business. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe someone imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? Boy, that's a great question. I remember very early on, when I first came to Sweetwater, we would have these little sales meetings, and there were only a few of us at the time, and Chuck was actually selling on the phone at the time. He was a full-time sales guy in addition to running the company, and so there were it was Chuck and five of us or six of us maybe by that point. And, uh, I remember we were looking at a product and it was a, let's just say it was a low end product. 
And at the time, we were much more focused on high end and high technology and kinds of things. And so I, I think maybe it was apparent that we, none of us were very impressed with it. And, and Chuck stopped us and he said, you know, there is a right application and a right person for every product. And so you have to remove your personal prejudices and, and uh, opinions and try to be as objective as you can because you're doing a disservice to the person who this product is right for by assuming that it's not appropriate for anybody. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or maybe not up to your highly you know, arrogant standards maybe <laughs> would be the way, to, yeah. the way that I would probably put it. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I always kept that in mind. That, that really had an impact on me. And, and uh, you know, I, I did sales for just a couple of years there, but I think it impacted me even more when I started getting into gear coverage and also music coverage in that, you know, as a journalist and as someone who's, who's presenting this to the public and trying to really, I, I view myself as much as anything as an educator mm-hmm. in, in what I do, that, that you really have to keep, you really need to have an open mind and be looking for what something is appropriate for and where it fits in the grand scheme of things. Because it, it, it's really true. There are very few products that just are not right and they don't last long. I mean, they're, they're kind of, it's usually pretty obvious that they just, there's something wrong or whatever. Yeah. But, but uh, regardless of price range, regardless of technology, regardless of manufacturer, regardless of anything else, you really have to look at each product as its own kind of thing. And each type of music as its own kind of thing. And each musician as their own kind of, you know, on and on and on down the line, each engineer because they're all contributing something. If they're doing it, they're contributing something that works for somebody. And so I view my job as finding that aspect of it. You know, you asked me, me earlier about, you know, what's the cool gear and, you know, all those kind of, you know, and we, I talked a little bit about how cool it is to see things. And, and I think people would be very interested to know that a lot of the stuff that's in my office and that's around is not the mega dollar stuff. I certainly love that stuff. I, you know, but there is so much that can be done and so much that is right about affordable gear. And, and I think that is uh, obvious because of the, the home studio thing. But all of my opinion on all of that stems from that very early conversation with Chuck back in the uh, back in the day. You know, that would have been back probably 92 or so when he when he said that to me, uh, to all of us. And I, I've carried it on ever since then. On the musical side, it was it was Carl Verheyen. I was bemoaning how long my EP was taking because it actually took me two years to put it out. And uh I was kind of whining and uh, basically he's, he said, just put it out. This is a document of where you are at this moment. And if you never get it out, you'll never have that document and you'll never be able to move on to the next one and you'll never be able to progress. So just finish it, put it out and move on to the next thing. And that, that really was a big piece of advice that allowed me to, to move on. And it, it's interesting. I'm, I've never had that problem with articles or with books. I can write the book and it's done, or I can write the article and it's done. For some reason with the music, the perfectionist thing kicks in and, and, uh, and uh, it's less, less easy to do that. So those are the two pieces of advice that really have, have come together for me. How many books have you written? Uh, I believe seven. I'd have to count seven or seven or eight. Yeah. What was the last one? The last one was uh, the guitar tone. It was called Guitar Tone. Uh, and it was, uh, my goal with it was to provide kind of the ultimate encyclopedia of the, uh, everything in the signal path that goes into creating a guitar tone. So everything from the strings to the cables, to the picks, to the pickups, to the woods, to the frets, to the speakers, to the pedals, to the tubes, to, you know, the first half of the book is delving into all those aspects and exploring as deeply as possible. The second half of the book, I took, uh, I think it's 13 players um, and uh, 11 or 13 players 
and dissected their rigs and their players who are well known for their tone mm. and uh, looked back through and uh, tried to give uh, readers an idea of what uh, modern gear would allow them to achieve what what these players are, were getting you know through the years or with vintage vintage kind of equipment so that's that was the last one that uh, that came out that's great i did one very similar maybe 10 years ago the ultimate guitar tone handbook and it was it looked at much the same thing and then the second half was all interviews not necessarily with guitar players although there were, there were several but with some manufacturers as well someone at the Dario and and Dick Boak uh at Martin and yeah. some people like that. So it was cool. And I must admit, I, the reason why I write books is I want to learn something. And I learned a lot, you know, with that one. Yeah. So it was really good. But Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I learned far more. You know, it's just like teaching a class. I, yeah. I have uh, I've taught quite a bit uh, adjunct at, uh, uh, there's a branch of Indiana and Purdue University here. It actually, they've now split where it's Purdue. And uh, Purdue now has the music program. And in fact, we have a, a studio program here on Sweetwater campus for Purdue University. Uh, but I did a lot of adjunct teaching in their in their recording program and also their music business program, and I always learned far more teaching the classes or writing the books or writing the articles than I than I was ever able to impart, you know, even in a good sized book. Yeah, you can find out more about Mitch at MitchGallagher.com. That's all one word: Mitch M I T C H Gallagher G A L L A G H E R MitchGallagher.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for a list of new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.